Our Father, we come humbly before you as we come to your word. And we thank you for being a God who is so good that you would not allow us to remain comfortable in our sin or complacent in our sin, but that you call us to yourself and you call us to a better way in which we are broken of our pride and our ego and those things and you work all things to make us more like Christ. And so as we study this passage today, Lord, we pray that you would show us our need for Christ. We pray that you would grow us in his likeness and we pray that you would strengthen us with your grace for the road ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be looking at the first 25 verses of Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 25. I was going to try to get further in the chapter, but there is so much good stuff. I'm, I'm so looking forward to getting done with Genesis, not because I haven't enjoyed Genesis, I really have, but because now I'm preparing for uh, this uh, series on John that we're going to be starting, hopefully in a couple months, but uh, don't want to take too big a chunk of Scripture at a time and miss all the good stuff that God has for us. Well, if you're uh, 18 years or older, you're probably very aware that this past week was uh, the week that your taxes were due. And if you didn't know that, uh, make a mental note of that for after church. But, but if, if, you, if you were aware of it, you either uh, received a refund because you accidentally loaned the government money without any interest, or, uh, because, or you wrote a check because uh, you owed the IRS some money. And I came across a, a funny story in, in one of my commentaries and actually on Craig Bedwards' uh, Facebook page and thought I'd share it as it's relevant to the subject at hand in our text today. The story goes that a couple weeks after hearing some really convicting sermons on lies and deceit, a man wrote the following letter to the IRS. He said, quote, I have been unable to sleep knowing that I have cheated on my income tax. I understated my taxable income and have enclosed a check for $150. Sincerely, taxpayer. P.S. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that every one of us has this thing called a conscience. And it's something of a a built-in morality sensor. It sets moral boundaries and perimeters for us, and it alerts us when we come close to those boundaries, or even more so, hopefully, when we cross those moral boundaries. And while I don't know if this story of the man paying his taxes out of a guilty conscience is true or not, First of all, we can all relate to it to some extent because we've probably all had times in which our conscience bothered us so much that we had to do something about it. Maybe it even deprived you of some sleep because you had to do something about it. And secondly, um, you know, by the way, if, you, if it hasn't ever gotten to that point, if your conscience has never uh, bothered you that much, maybe you're just a psychopath. But secondly, the truth is that thousands of people actually have done what this guy in the story did. Uh, there's something called the Federal Conscience Fund. 
that was created in 1811 uh, to be a means by which people could compensate for a guilty conscience, something to calm their conscience, where they could anonymously make financial contributions for occasions when a a person's conscience is unsettled due to either having, um, you know, intentionally or unintentionally shortchanged Uncle Sam. But the conscience, make no mistake about it, the conscience is a good thing. In fact, it's a very good thing. It is the law of God written on the human heart according to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing the, the objection. Um, how can, how can we, we uh, understand that God would, um, would judge Gentiles when they don't have the word of God? And that's a good question, but the answer is they've violated their conscience. The law of God is written on their heart, and they've acted against that. And by doing that, they have transgressed God's laws. So given the depths of wickedness which are stored in the human heart, it is truly astounding that we can still say that we all have a conscience, that everybody has a conscience. But the thing is, things can, uh, can affect a conscience. If you ignore it, you can destroy its usefulness. It, it, it may go off and it may be, be pulling you and, and you just defy it, right? You know, we can, we can certainly just learn to ignore what our conscience is directing us to do. The first time, you know, you're tempted to do something that you know you shouldn't do and you feel your conscience pulling your will in the opposite direction with incredible force. But then you start thinking about it. And what you start doing is you start reasoning with your own conscience. You start trying to persuade your own conscience to cross that boundary. And we've all done it. We start thinking, well, I have to try it if I know, if, to know how bad it is. Or everybody else is doing it, so I may as well do it. Or I think this is actually going to be good for me. This is going to feel good. This is going to benefit me in some way. I just have to get over the way it makes me feel bad. One way or another, you coax your conscience to sleep, reasoning with it. Oh, how free we feel when we strangled the pesky and restraining conscience into a deep sleep. Or it's possible to actually be too sensitive to it, to, to listen to it too closely. And for a Christian who's experienced God's grace, it's possible then for sins that have been forgiven, that have been confessed, that have been repented of, it's possible for those sins to still be bothering a person, even though it's been dealt with. And and that's not good either. It doesn't need to weigh a person down unnecessarily if it's adequately and truly been dealt with. So as we continue in our study of Genesis today, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 42, verses 1 to 25. And this passage deals with the way that God awakens a conscience. And what a, a blessed and what a, what a wonderful thing it is when God awakes the conscience of an individual. And by the way, that shouldn't be misunderstood as being the same thing as being culturally woke. The point of this passage is that God uses the conscience to stir us to repentance, to stir us to confession, and to see that His grace is the only cure for a guilty conscience. So let's start verses 1-5 to in chapter 42. Let's see what the Word of God says for us. It says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? 
He said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine in the land of Can- was in the land of Canaan also. So we learned at the end of the previous chapter that there was a famine in Egypt, but that it was also beyond Egypt. It went beyond the borders of Egypt. It was the whole world that went into this famine. And word gets to, to Jacob, and, and it looks like his sons as well, that, that there's a place to get food. The one place to get something to eat is down in Egypt. And all of his sons apparently have heard of it as well, but there is this cold, silent, eerie stare that's going on between them. They're just sitting there looking at each other as they receive the news of there being food down in Egypt. They remember who's down in Egypt. They remember that they had sold their brother, Joseph, for 20 shekels of silver to some pagan merchants who were headed down to Egypt many years ago. So what if they went down there and they just so happened to run into Joseph? What if they go down there and he sees them? See, for, for Jacob, Egypt isn't, you know, it's not a good place, it's not a bad place, it's just kind of a, a neutral place. There's no reason to not go there to get food as far as Jacob is concerned. But for the brothers, the very mention of Egypt reminded them of the way their brother had screamed and pleaded for his life with them so many years ago. And so when they heard the name Egypt, they heard those cries and those screams all over again. And so Jacob prompts them to take action. Quit staring at one another. Get down there. You know, he asks them why they're staring at each other, and he instructs them, get down there and get some food, get some grain in Egypt. And perhaps fearing the possibility of, uh, of never seeing any of his sons again, Jacob keeps Benjamin home with him. So as we begin this chapter, let's not only remember that Joseph had been appointed second in command, basically in charge of everything going on in Egypt. That is an important detail, but the story, remember at this point, starting in chapter 37, the story is not so much about Joseph as it's about the house of Jacob, the house of Israel. So we know that this this severe famine has fallen on the land, but let's also not forget that God is the one who is sovereign over this famine. In fact, he's the one who caused it. He's the one who determined it. And maybe you'd ask the question, how could God cause a famine to fall on the land? And the answer is to save his people. To save his people from their own sinful pursuits and their own sinful desires. See, Jacob was was chosen by God. There's no question about that. That's pretty explicit. He was chosen by God. But it wasn't because he was a good man. He had incredible, incredible struggles with the flesh. And his flesh often got the best of him. But those struggles that he had continued into his fatherhood, his years as a father. And maybe that explains why his sons, with the exception of Joseph, were some of the ungodliest, most wicked men imaginable. 
Well, let's, let's go over their, their rap sheet here. Their oldest son, the oldest of the sons, Reuben, committed incest with his father's concubine as he was trying to pull a power play over his father, and it failed. His next two oldest sons were Simeon and Levi. They were guilty of genocide. They went on a mass murder spree against the Shechemites. The fourth oldest son was Judah. And we saw, there was a whole chapter devoted to what a, what a bad guy Judah was. He was hard-hearted. He conceived of a child with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, after Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute because she wanted to bear a child to carry on the name of Judah's son. And by the way, Judah's son uh, was so wicked that God ended his life. And to cap it all off, all the ten brothers, with the exception of Reuben, had conspired the murder of Joseph. They beat him. They stripped him of his coat, his, his, his desirable coat that they envied, and they made up a story about Joseph being killed by some wild beast uh, as they brought home uh, the coat with animal's blood on it to fool their father. So given that Joseph was 30 years of age when he gave the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, according to the previous chapter, he was 30 years old, and that seven years would pass before the famine started, it seems reasonable to conclude that at this point, Joseph is 37. And if you remember, he was 17 back in chapter 37 when we were introduced to him. So 20 years have passed by since we were introduced to him and since he was sold into slavery down to Egypt. So his brothers have had 20 years to deal with their consciences after what they did. For 20 years, these guys had perpetuated the lie about Joseph's fate before their father. And after a while, I mean, we all know how this works. After a while, it just got easier and easier and easier. And the lie just more naturally came off their lips as they just got more and more comfortable telling the lie and more and more comfortable with what they did to Joseph. So this was a group of men who were completely wicked, this was a group of men that were not concerned about God. They, they didn't care about God in the least. They did not love God. They did not worship God. They didn't even have room in their lives for Him. He meant nothing to them. And that is the condition of man by nature. Spiritually dead. It's the condition of man by nature. So, we have to assume that up until this point, these men, every one of them, is lost. Every one of them is unregenerate, lost. But God is not done with them. That's the good news. God isn't done with them. The God who calls people to Himself by His own sovereign will sends a famine, and the famine would be a catalyst in their salvation, in the salvation of the household of Jacob. God had planned for this great nation to come from them, a nation that God would use to bless all the nations of the earth in accordance with the promises that He made to Abraham, the covenant that He made with Abraham. But in order for that to happen, in order for God to, to use Jacob's house to bless all the nations, these men would need to be saved from all these sinful pursuits and desires, all the worldliness that has taken them captive. 
And how's God going to do that? How's He going to get them from point A to point B when it looks like there's just this uncrossable gap between the two? Well, it's always been the same. He stirs and He awakens the conscience of an individual. And sometimes He does it gently, but more often I think He probably does it abruptly. But the inclination of the wicked is to silence or to ignore their conscience. So that has to be overcome and dealt with as well. But how can the sleeping conscience, the practically, practically absent conscience of such a, a harsh group of men be awakened? How would God use Joseph to alert these men to the reality of the depths of their sin? How would God do this? Harshly. Harshly. It started with the famine coming, showing them that they had this need that could only be met by going down to Egypt, but it wouldn't stop there. Let's read verses 6 to 25. It says, Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You're spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this stress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill the bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So remember, this is 20 years later. 
20 years have passed since they saw their brothers, their, their brother Joseph, since they, they sold him to some merchants that were headed down to Egypt. And the same brothers now make the trip down to Egypt themselves at the demands of their father. They had to believe, they had to convince themselves before they went that it was going to be virtually impossible for them to imagine a scenario in which they'd run into Joseph. I mean, people, they knew that there were people from all over the world just flocking to Egypt for food. And so if Joseph was even still alive, which it seems they assume he's not, but if he is still alive, they had to reason, well, you know, he'd just be a common slave. He wouldn't be out there asking for food exactly where we are. And it's even possible that if he's still alive, that he'd been sold off to a slave owner from another country. So maybe he's not even in Egypt anymore. They had to imagine some kind of scenario. They had to imagine that it was just impossible for there to be a scenario in which they'd run into Joseph. So the brothers obey their father's command. They go down to Egypt. And verse 6 tells us that as they arrived... What did they do? They bowed down before Joseph with their faces to the ground. That's an important detail. Hold on to that one. But they didn't realize that it's Joseph. This is where the story is so great. It's 20 years later, and they have no idea that it's Joseph. You know, they've all aged quite a bit. You age a lot in 20 years. But Joseph, he was not only you know, clean-shaven, but he wasn't dressed like a slave in fact, you can almost guarantee that he was dressed in the fine, uh, fine linens that, uh, that Pharaoh had provided for him. And not only that, but he spoke the Egyptian language. So th- there was no chance that they would identify him as the brother that they had sold into slavery so long ago. But he recognized them. The older ones, you know, they, they have to have grown some gray hair or maybe lost some hair along the years. You know, their skin is probably weathered uh, fairly considerably under the heat of the, the dry Canaan sun. But they spoke a Hebrew dialect that Joseph would have identified immediately, that he would have been familiar with and, and recognized immediately. And so he confirms their identity in verse 7, asking them where they're from. And of course, they respond that they are from Canaan. And so suddenly, Joseph remembers the dreams that God had given him so many years ago. In the first dream, if you remember back in chapter 37, Joseph and his brothers were working out in the fields, binding sheaves, when suddenly Joseph's sheaf stands upright above the sheaves of the brothers, and the sheaves of the brothers bowed down before Joseph's sheaf. And suddenly, Joseph realizes that this was the moment that it was talking that it was referring to he, he realizes that the first dream which was a promise by God was actually happening and so what was he what was he going to do realizing that this is something that God had planned for 20 plus years in his life obviously God planned it from eternity but he revealed it 20 years earlier so what was Joseph going to do I have to imagine that Joseph that every molecule in his being wanted to reveal himself to his brothers at this point. But he doesn't. One commentator writes this. He says, quote, It was the Lord that brought the dreams to his remembrance. And Joseph, I am persuaded, recognized the Lord in this. 
At once he perceives that this affair of his brethren coming to him is of the Lord. It's not a common occurrence. It's not mere casual coincidence. The Lord is here in this place and in this business, and therefore the Lord must regulate the whole and fix the time and manner of discovery. If he had been left to himself, Joseph would not have hesitated a moment. His is not a cold or crafty temperament. He's not a maneuverer. He would have had all over within the first few minutes, but the Lord restrains him, end quote. And I agree. It seems like Joseph isn't a cunning type of guy. He's not a deceiver. And so I believe that the Lord is restraining him here so that he doesn't reveal himself immediately. But whatever the case, whether Joseph was restraining himself or whether the Lord was restraining him, he begins this really harsh interrogation of his brothers. First, he accuses them of being spies, which, of course, they deny. But he persists. And again, they deny, revealing that there were actually 12 brothers. One, Benjamin, referring to Benjamin, one is at home and one is dead. Of course, that's referring to Joseph. They assume that he's dead. So, so why this interrogation? You know, some people have, have criticized Joseph for hesitating to be reconciled to the brothers, to maybe deceiving them, you know, accusing him of, of deceiving them a little bit. But I believe that God is using this interrogation to break them down and to reveal to Joseph what kind of guys they have become after all these years. I mean, two of these guys went on a genocidal killing spree. All of them, except Reuben, had been complicit in selling Joseph off and, and planning his murder. So are they the same type of people? Are they still cut from that cloth? Are they the same hard-hearted, godless group of men that they had been the last time Joseph saw them 20 years ago? He doesn't know. He doesn't have any way of knowing. Do they still harbor the deep hatred that they had for him back in chapter 37, 20 years ago? And how willing would they be to stretch the truth about who they were. Isn't it funny that they, they insist that they, they're the type of people who tell the truth, but they've been perpetuating a lie for 20 years. And would any of them sacrifice a brother for the sake of saving themselves? Joseph needed to know. And so God uses this to stir the memory of the brother that they assumed to be dead. And it seems at least possible that Joseph is actually replaying the scene that happened 20 years ago when they sold him off to the merchants headed down to Egypt. You'll remember that chapter 37 started off telling us about how Joseph was Jacob's favorite son and how he tattled on his brothers to their father. With that in mind, I don't think it seems too far of a stretch. It doesn't seem too unreasonable to to think that as Joseph approached his brothers as they were working out in the fields later on in that chapter, that they interrogated him upon his arrival, accusing him of being a spy on behalf of their father. I think that seems very likely that these are the questions they had asked him 20 years ago. You're a spy. You're spying for dad. And now he's turning the tables, asking them the same questions. So, you know, there are a few things that will stir the human conscience, like imagining yourself in the shoes of somebody else that you have wronged. And for many people, they don't even think that far outside of themselves. It never even crosses their mind to consider what somebody that they have wronged might be feeling. And so their conscience remains comatose. 
And part of the reason I suspect that, that this is what happens, that, that, that the same scene is being played out the other way, is because suddenly the consciences of the brothers start stirring and start showing signs of life. And it isn't long before they start seeing a connection between what they did to their brother and what's happening to them right now. And their theory is revealed in in verses 21 and 22. They're convinced that the reason that this is happening to them is because God is punishing them for what they did to their brother. Where would they get that connection? I suspect uh, it's because Joseph used the same questions, the same interrogation on his brothers that they had used on him. So they conclude, God's punishing us for that. Let's talk about that for a second. Was God punishing them? You know, we might be tempted to think that. We might be tempted to think that that's why they would be in in this situation. And if we were in their shoes, maybe we would be tempted to think that that's why we're in that situation. But actually, no, God is not punishing them. In fact, He's doing the very opposite of punishing them. In fact, He is pouring out His love upon them like it has never been. Because if God wanted to punish them, He would just leave their consciences in a comatose state. He would just leave their consciences alone because a conscience that's made aware of sin will seek a means by which the person can calm or soothe their conscience. People have this this weird idea that that what comes around goes around. And in one sense, that might be true. The the Bible does speak of reaping what you sow, although that's talking about sinning and then receiving God's wrath one day, which is an entirely different concept from karma, which is an Eastern uh, ideology that has no grounding, no no foundation, no, uh, no support whatsoever in the Bible. You know, if you live a life of crime, um, eventually you're, you're probably going to be caught. The more times you do it, the more likely you are to be caught. So in that sense, maybe what comes around goes around. But think about the way also that that uh, uh, Job's friends thought about Job during his trials. They assumed that the reason that Job was undergoing these fierce trials was because of some unconfessed sin that he was harboring in his heart, right? In his life. That he just wasn't, maybe he wasn't aware of it, maybe he was hiding it, but one way or another, his conditions were related to the fact that he had sinned. And so this was his just punishment. But they were wrong. Job's friends were wrong. Job was suffering not because he was unrighteous, Job was suffering because he was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. It wasn't because of any unrighteousness or any sin in his life. But that shows us. The the fact that they think that God is is punishing them by having them here, it shows us how far these guys are from even understanding or knowing God. They have no idea how God works. Instead, they've got this kind of pagan superstition about it. They're there because God is being gracious unto them. And aren't we tempted to think the same way? You know, we think that if we're good, God's going to make good things happen to us. What about when we think we're good and bad things happen, though? The book of Hebrews corrects this type of thinking and reminds us that God disciplines His children. You know, fatherly love. 
The type of love that you would expect a father to exercise toward his kids when the stove's hot. And he scoops them up so abruptly that it scares them and and jolts them. He doesn't discipline them for the sake of harming them, but for the sake of teaching them to stay away from things that endanger them. And that's the same type of love that God exercises toward His people. So let's ask the question again. Is God punishing them for what they did to their brother? Was this an act of divine retribution? It's the furthest thing from it. This is an act of divine love. But these guys don't know God. They don't love God. They don't want God. But God has a calling on their lives. And so He doesn't just leave their consciences to slumber. And so as Joseph interrogates them, he insists that the missing brother be brought into their presence. And so he puts them in prison. He tells them that one of them may leave to go get the brother while the others remain in custody. And these three days in prison must have seemed absolutely terrifying to the brothers. But you know what it did? It gave them time to think. It gave them solitude. It put them in a place where there were no distractions. All the distractions of everyday life that filled their minds were wiped away. They had to come face to face with the type of people they were. And they had to deal with the fact that they knew about how God had warned that the blood of man must not be shed, for man bears the image of God. That was the covenant that God made with all of humanity when the flood was over. Genesis 9-6. And so as they sat in jail, as the brothers sat in jail, they had to worry. They had to worry about the possibility that they were going to die there. And they were going to have to face God about what they had done to their brother so many years ago. They all had his blood on their hands. You know, in a culture in which we're so obsessed with being productive and making the very most of every nanosecond of the day, it's very necessary to be intentional about taking time in solitude to reflect on God's Word and to reflect on God's ways. Because we very easily just become slaves of the things that fill up our daily calendars from top to bottom. And it's very easy to compromise our time spent with God. That's the easiest thing to write off of our daily calendars. You know, we can reason, you know, I'll just pray on my way to work. I'll use that as my quiet time. Or I can listen to some positive alternative Christian music in the car. One of the things that drives me nuts about Christian radio is when they play callers calling in and saying, I turn to you guys when I'm having a tough day. You turn to the radio when you're having a tough day instead of turning to God. Just a personal thing. You know, whatever the case, it's just not the same. It's not the same as actually sitting in a place and you've got a a time slot reserved. Nothing else is going to take this time. This is God's time. We need time alone with God in silence. Not while you're driving because you get distracted by driving. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer who wrote this in his 1948 book, The Pursuit of God. 
He wrote, quote, A generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. Remember, this is 1948. He continues, he says, We've been trying to apply machine age methods to our relations with God. We read our chapter, have our short devotions, and rush away, hoping to make up for our deep inward bankruptcy. He goes on to say, The the tragic results of this spirit are all about us. Shallow lives, hollow religious philosophies, the preponderance of the element of fun in gospel meetings, the glorification of men, trust in religious externalities, quasi-religious fellowships, salesman-like methods, the mistaking of dynamic personality for the power of the Spirit. These and such as these are the symptoms of an evil disease, a deep and serious malady of the soul. End quote. And maybe you're thinking, that sounds like me. And if it does, can I just encourage you to slow down and to be very intentional about taking a block of time every day to not only read God's Word, but to actually reflect on it and then intentionally continue reflecting on it through the day? You know, it's okay to take that with you. It's okay to do other things while you're thinking about spiritual matters. But start with a time of solitude. Take regular, quiet time with God and don't give that up for anything. Your spiritual walk requires things like solitude and reflection and prayer and meditating, uninterrupted meditating on God's Word. And as busy as we are and as busy as we can get, as quickly as our daily schedules get filled up, it requires that we be very, very intentional about taking time to do this. So God is using Joseph to just break these brothers down. To bring them to to the end of themselves. But he's not done yet. Joseph continues to to, to, to lightly stir and harshly stir anguish within their souls. First, he refers to God. And says he fears God in verse 18. When have any of the other brothers even mentioned God up until this point? When are we told that they even thought about God up until this point? You know, as they've been in the midst of great internal strife, not a single single one of them has said one single word about God. None of them have prayed. None of them have sought God's help in any way. None of them have said, hey guys, we can relax. The Lord is with us here in this jail cell. There's no mention of God. But then there's this powerful ruler in Egypt. Joseph, they don't don't realize. To them, he's just a powerful ruler of Egypt who says, I fear Elohim, the God of Israel. That had to wake him up. If nothing else, it put them in their place because here's this pagan ruler who says he fears their God and they haven't said a single word about their God. But then Joseph does something else that, that probably surprised them. He tells them that only one of them needs to stay while the other nine can go home and get Benjamin. Why does he do that? What's, what's Joseph trying to accomplish there? I'd say it seems like he's, he's allowing the men to... to Go and provide for their families. You know, they've got families that are waiting for food. But he's also testing them 
to see what kind of guys they are, to see what kind of men they are, to see if they'd abandon one of their brothers for the sake of saving their own skin as they had with Joseph so many years ago. At this point, their conscience is almost completely awakened. It's to the point that it's, it's starting to sting a little bit. And they're starting to see connections. And what happens? Look at verse 21. They confess their guilt. Verse 21, it says, Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. It's quite a confession. They're all guilty. And they know it. And for the first time in their lives, they're willing to admit it. And so in the midst of this discussion that they're having, Joseph learns as he overhears that Reuben actually wasn't complicit in what happened. And he learns, maybe more importantly, that his desperate cries for help hadn't been forgotten by the people who had done him so wrong. The most important thing comes out, that comes out of this is the acknowledgement that all of them make of their guilt. They say to one another, they're all saying, we're guilty. It's a good thing. Friends, I know we, we hate to feel guilt, and that is by God's design. God has designed us to hate the feeling of guilt weighing on our conscience. Because when the conscience rightfully stirs up a sense of guilt, it prompts us to, to take action. It prompts us to confess. It prompts us to seek forgiveness. It prompts us to repent. Because the worst thing that can happen to a person is for them to just silence their conscience or to learn to just ignore it. So eventually, Simeon is the one who is chosen to stay behind her. Or maybe he volunteered. You know, We don't know. Whatever the case. They're all deserving of imprisonment. And for the first time in their lives, they all know it. They all know it. For the first time in their lives, they've considered the wrongs, the sins that they have committed. And for the first time in their lives, they realize that all they deserve is God's wrath. That's it. That's all they deserve. And they know it. You know, maybe up until this point, they had lived under the delusion that their sin would never, ever, ever find them out. And that they could just do whatever they wanted. They could do whatever feels good. They could do whatever seems pleasing. And that there wouldn't be any consequences. Maybe they had that delusion. But God has brought them to the place where they needed food, so they went to Egypt. And God brought them to the place where they remembered what they did to their brother. And God brought them to the place where they had to think about what they did to their brother and to face the fact that this universe isn't amoral. That is, it's not as if there's no moral standard by which we can be judged. This isn't a universe in which we can decide for ourselves what's right or what's wrong. They come face to face with the reality that we must submit ourselves to the God who rules over the universe, who is perfectly just, and who therefore must punish every sin. So God uses the conscience to stir us to repentance and to see that His 
Grace is the only real cure for a guilty conscience. These brothers think that they've been put into this situation as punishment. But the time will come when they're actually going to see that this is the greatest act of love that God has done to them up until this point. That day is coming, but they're not there quite yet. You know, I'm reminded of the time in John chapter 9 when Jesus' disciples and, and Jesus come across a man who was born blind. And so they turn to Jesus and they've got the same, the same idea that Job's friends had. And they've got the same idea that the brothers here have. They say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be blind? Do you see the connection they're making? Wrongly, I might add. They're saying, okay, his blindness is a consequence of somebody's sin. Because what comes around goes around. And obviously, God is punishing this man by having him be born blind. And what does Jesus say to them? He kind of rebukes them. He said it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Have you ever thought that maybe that's what your suffering is for? So that the work of God might be seen in you? So that you would have grace in the midst of affliction? that the world has no answer for. What a radical change of thought that God wants to be glorified in affliction and that He is glorified in affliction. See, adversity or or, or trials aren't necessarily a sign or a proof of some previous sin. To the contrary, sometimes having prosperity is a sign that you're in unrepentant sin. Sometimes having abundance is a sign that a person has just been handed over to their sin. And adversity can be a reminder that the greatest good that God could possibly do unto us is to help us learn to hate our sin. And that requires discipline. That is not an easy thing to learn. We see that this passage closes, it concludes with Joseph acting in incredible grace toward his brothers. They haven't even apologized to him yet, but it's good enough for him just to see that God is awakening their conscience. And they're starting to recognize that all they deserve is the wrath of God. And so Joseph instructs that their money be returned and they're given grain to bring back to their families, provisions for the journey home. Joseph has forgiven his brothers before they have even sought reconciliation with him. Do you know that that's the way it's supposed to work? That if somebody wrongs you, you need to forgive them before they even come to you and confess? Because it's not something, forgiveness isn't something you can earn. True forgiveness has to be something where you realize. I'm less worthy of being forgiven before God than this person is of being forgiven by me. So Joseph has forgiven his brothers. 
he wept upon hearing their confession of, of guilt, these guys still saw no hope in their situation. The sins of, of their past were just rising up like floodwaters in their souls. And they feared the divine wrath against their sins that they were worthy of. And they realized, maybe for the first time in their lives, in a very real way, that the wage of sin is death. And that that's all that they deserved. And they knew it. Friends, if you have not confessed your guilt and put your faith in Christ, whom God sent to die, for the redemption of His people and for the remission of their sins. Know that you are as guilty as Joseph's brothers were. If you haven't believed in Christ, it's because you have driven Him away. As far away as you could possibly send Him. The same way that Joseph's brothers drove Him as far away as they could possibly send Him. But you must come to the place where you confess your guilt. Maybe God's used this passage, this lesson, to remind you of a sin in your life that you haven't confessed, that you're still guilty about, and you've tried to silence your conscience about it. So wake your conscience and wash it clean by looking to Calvary, where Christ bore the sins that you're guilty of. He took them upon Himself and paid the price for them as He bore the sins of all who repent and believe in Him. If the hand of God is ever heavy on your heart over something that you have done, you need to know that the greatest good that He could do to you is not to let your your, your conscience go silent or dormant or comatose. The greatest good that He could do to you is to rescue you from the grip that sin has on your life. Listen to the words from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. It says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from your dead works to serve the living God? If you're guilty of something that you haven't confessed, listen, when you are ready to confess before God, you'll find that the cleansing that God offers is found only in Christ. And it is so complete. And that is what is freeing. So turn to Christ in genuine repentance and faith because that's where you'll find that the cool waters of His grace are the only thing that can soothe your conscience. Keep your, to- your conscience rightly tuned, by the way. It's there for a reason. It's there for you to be aware of. It's there for you to listen to. So listen to it. God gave it to you to keep you walking in His ways. Listen to what John says. 1 John chapter 1. He says this in verses 6 and 7. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And he continues with what's 
maybe the one promise that every single one of us should go back to time and time and time again. Verses 8 and 9, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, may we be a people who live at the door of that promise. Always being quick to confess our sins before the Lord in order that He may bless us, not only with a clean conscience, but with an abundance of grace for the journey ahead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You again for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You are not a God who just leaves the conscience of Your people alone. But that You are a God who will use circumstances to awaken us to the reality of our sin and our guilt and our worthiness of Your wrath. Not in order to punish us, but to grow us in the likeness of Christ. To remind us that the wage of sin is death and that we must repent and believe in Christ who promises that if we will confess, He will wash us clean. And so, Father, in the silence of our hearts, we know that You know every thought and we confess before You the sins that we know we're guilty of. And we ask that You would put them on Christ who loved us enough to die for us, who loved us enough that He would take our sins upon Himself and You would crush Him as You poured Your wrath against our sins out on Him. And He clothed us in His righteousness that we may stand with His righteousness before You, forgiven. Thank You, Lord, for providing a way for us to cleanse our consciences. Thank You, Lord, that in Your wisdom You have taught us to listen to our consciences. We pray, Lord, that we would bear much fruit and that obedience would increase in our lives as we become more and more like Christ, as we turn away from the sins that prevent us from being more and more like Him. But we ask that all glory and honor be given unto Him who died in order to cleanse us and set us free, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power that sin has in our lives. May Christ be glorified, Father in our lives. It's in His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.